Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. I'm here in the back house with Deborah Searle. Welcome. Thank you. Home is Plymouth, England. It is. The English coast, English channel. Yes. And this is her first time in the back house. <laughs> it's good to be here. It's having heard about it. It's nice to see what it actually looks like. Does it, it lives up to whatever was looming large in your oh, imagination? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, anywhere where there's surfboards is always good in my mind. Oh, I love it. That was a great opening line. <laughs> okay, my friends. I know when I do interview somebody in the Rapcast, you're always like, what's the angle? Where are we headed? Who is this person? Why are they in the back house? So let's start. Because as soon as I um, interacted with you and then did the, the normal Google thing, I was like, oh, my word, I have a thousand questions for her. So, several years ago, 2001, mm -hmm. you got in a rowboat yeah. and rowed alone across the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. You started in England? No, I started in Tenerife off the coast of Africa, which is traditionally, the, so the trade winds go from Tenerife across to the Caribbean, uh, so from Africa across to the Caribbean. It's the old trade route, spice route. And so if you leave at a certain time of year, the conditions are prevailing in, in that direction. So you see this once again, I have like 9,000 questions. And you rode from the tip of Africa and you landed where? In Barbados, which is a great place to finish if you're going to spend three and a half months in a rowing <laughs> boat. <laughs> um, dear Robcast listeners, if you're going to row across the Atlantic Ocean alone, Barbados apparently yeah, is a tip. wonderful place. <laughs> okay, how long? How many days did it take? It took me 111 days. Which is like a... Three and a half months of, uh, <laughs> of, of high adventure on the high seas. Okay. Um, now, we got to go back. Where did the idea come from? And had you been doing things like this before that? So I, I'd never rowed before. I was a novice rower, and um, I had done a lot wait, of. Wait, wait, you'd never rowed before, <laughs> meaning? <laughs> no. So I, I, so to explain and put it into some kind of context, I, as a teenager, got obsessed with adventures and explorers, and I'd read all these books by these kind of Scott of Antarctica, and and remember reading a book by Ranulph Fiennes, who's a kind of great British explorer, still alive, and thinking, I want his job. And so I told my careers advisor and said, I'm going to be a professional adventurer. And she was like, that's not a career for a young lady. How old are you at that age when you oh, said I'm that? like 15. And you're living where? In Plymouth, in De well, in Devon, yeah. And how did people see, like, women and empowerment and careers and what's possible? Was that abnormal for a young woman to have that Oh, completely. Yeah, completely. This was, this was a ridiculous idea. Um, but I, I never gave up on it as an idea. I, I even found a degree course where I could specialize in adventure education. So I kind of did all my mountain leadership qualifications and canoe a kayak instructor and <laughs> left with all these instructor tickets. And I came over to the US actually in the summer and would work in summer camps in teaching canoe and kayak, you know, just anything to do with adventure I loved. And I um, met lots of other nutty adventurers at university, so started to do more and more adventurous trips, you know, really upskilling. And then kind of went into a teaching job first, was teaching kids in the outdoors. But I, I, what I really wanted to do was do this cycle that I saw explorers doing where they'd go on an expedition 
actually before that they have to get a sponsor then they go on an expedition then they come back and they write a book or they make a program or they um they do talks about it then they get the next one and it kind of goes around in a cycle I thought that's what I want to do and then it didn't seem like it was going to be possible as a career until the Atlantic Row came up as an idea and I'd met my husband and he was um he'd rode internationally so he was a six foot five big guy and he kept saying I'd love to come on one of your adventures and this one seemed the perfect one for us to do together when this concept of an Atlantic rowing race came up so we entered as a it was a double-handed crew race and other people were rowing at the same time yeah so we all left from Tenerife started gun went um, two people in the boat in identical boats. They, you know, they arrived. They looked like an IKEA wardrobe when they arrived. They're 24 sheets of marine plywood, and you've got to build this thing as part of the challenge. You built it. You built the boat. Yeah. Have you built a boat before? No. So we. You rode across the Atlantic in a boat you built. Yeah, we did get a bit of help. Boat <laughs> you built. Yeah. Okay. And this just is all alongside, you know, get it having a full time job, and you know, so it was a busy time just getting to the start line. And we set off on this thing and, you know, and it, and it was an odd time in Tenerife because when we lined up alongside all these other competitors, there were 36 or seven boats in this thing. We were the only mixed sex team. And so when I stand next to Andrew, I'm, you know, I'm like five foot four and a bit. And Andrew's six foot five and all the other rows were quite similar to him. And so we were this joke entry, like the comedy, you know, that if anyone wasn't going to make it, it was Deborah. Um, Do a number of people row across the Atlantic every year? They didn't at that time. So in 2001, um, no, I mean, hardly anyone had. And I think there was one other woman that had done it. Or so, you know, it was now it's much more. Wait, you're the often. second woman? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this hasn't been done much. No. There isn't that much of a body of knowledge about what to expect. <laughs> when rowing no I mean when the, so this was the second race they'd done they did one four years before and I think at that point more people had been to the moon than had rowed an ocean <laughs> that's a good stat by the way it is so we went thinking you know are we going to live or die is it you know there was a real sense of unknown and it was what attracted me to the project because I'd been doing a lot of mountaineering and you know and, and it seemed like all the good mountains had been climbed all the rivers had been run and this was a really unusual challenge and one that Andrew and I could do together because he was a great rower and what were people like family, friends, neighbors, siblings saying to you about this idea when, when you first started to share it? I think initially they probably thought, oh, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. And, you know, the novelty will wear off. They'll, they won't get to the start line. And, but then once we got closer and they saw that it was going to happen, they were incredibly supportive. I suppose my parents had got used to me going off doing crazy stuff. So, yeah, they were great about it. Really? Amazing. So you start off? We start off and then very quickly it becomes apparent that things are not going to pan out how we had anticipated. Um, really on the first night, <laughs> it's quite hard to describe, but I suppose really what we discovered was Andrew has a really crippling phobia of open ocean, which of course was quite an unfortunate time to discover this. <laughs> when you tell this part of the story, how do crowds normally respond? Uh, I, I think normally they laugh because um, because it seems so ridiculous. Like, how can you set to sea in a rowing boat and not know? But we never, but we did nearly all our training on the River Thames in London, so we had no idea that this would be a problem for him. And it wasn't until we lost sight of land that it became a problem, and um, it got worse and worse as the next few days 
developed and um, got to the stage where you know, he was having panic attacks and and so we were left with no choice really than to call for a rescue. He was losing dramatic amounts of weight. He wasn't eating or drinking. And I was loving it. You know, this was the real challenge. Like I'm there having the time of my life feeling like I was born for this challenge. And seeing him struggle was, was desperate. And I got to the point where I knew that it, we couldn't go on as we were. So I called for a rescue yacht. And... Um, and they came and picked Andrew up, and I was then left with this massive decision, you know, do I get off onto this nice big rescue boat and go home with him, or do I stay out here and, and uh, try and finish it for both of us? And this is a boat that the two of you were rowing? Yeah, it's designed So if you stay people. on the boat, then it's one person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it needed adapting a little bit, um, and while we waited for this rescue boat to arrive... Um, we, we spent some time modifying everything so that we could make it as safe as possible for me on my own. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where naivety is bliss. You know, we, looking back now, I, I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, had I been washed overboard by a wave, there was no boat going to follow along behind me. As soon as they took Andrew, they were going back, back to get him to land, to get him medical assistance. So, um, you know, if I'd been washed overboard, that had been it. No, they wouldn't have even known I was in the water. They wouldn't have been coming back to get me. Okay, so there's a moment when the rescue boat shows up mm. and he gets on it. Mm. And you either get on it and hook your boat to the back or whatever it is, or you just row away alone. Yeah. <laughs> and you decide yeah. to row away alone. Yeah into the open ocean, and the boat goes the other direction. Yeah, and that was an odd moment, you know, because I, I just was watching them <laughs> yes. sailing away, thinking, well, that's it. <laughs> I'm on my own now, you know, and no idea how long this thing's going to take. With Andrew on board, we thought it would take maybe six, six weeks or 40 days. I had no idea I was going to be out there for three and a half months. <laughs> you know, Wait, had where I. are the other people who started the race? Oh, oh, hundreds of miles apart by this point. You know, the front runners are well ahead. Um, you know, if, to put it into context, the winners, uh, the day they won, I looked at my chart and I still had 2,000 miles to go. So there was a, very quickly the mm -hmm. teams got split up. I didn't see any other boats the rest of the time. For three and a half months. Mm. The only boats I saw were container ships, which were the bane of my life, you know. Because they're huge. Because they're huge and they're not looking out for a woman in a rowing boat. So, you know, there's... <laughs> they're <laughs> they huge constant and they're not looking out for women in rowing boats. Do they put up a wake? Um, yeah. So the bow, the bow wave off the front is the big problem because it's throwing 30 feet in the air, this wall of water coming off the bow. And so, you know, I took it upon myself that they weren't going to get out of my way. They did. I mean, most of the time they've got it on autopilot, so they're not looking out. They could, actually couldn't see me most of the time. When I managed to speak to someone on the radio, they couldn't see me on the radar. So that was the problem because when I slept, nobody was on watch. So I timed it. And from when I saw a ship on one horizon to when they crossed my position was generally about 20 minutes. So I only ever slept for 20 minutes at a time. So it became this very grueling routine of doing two hours off Sorry, two hours rowing, one hour off. Two hours rowing, one hour off. And then the one hour off, you've got to eat a huge amount. You've got to eat about 8,000 calories a day. Um, and then there's fixing of the boat to do. There's navigation always to do. And then that left about 20 minutes to sleep at the end of every hour off. For three and a half months, yeah. you're doing 20 minutes mm. sleeps. Yeah. Okay, really obvious. I'm completely ignorant. I think I've proven that. Let's go to the details the food, you have that much food on the rowboat. 
Yes, so the race organisers didn't know particularly, they weren't confident how long it would take everyone. So they made everyone take 60 days food per person. So I had 120 days food because I had Andrews as well. It's in, um, it's freeze-dried or boiling the bag. It's all packed into the hull of the boat in little bags. And then you purify seawater. So you have solar panels that charge a car battery that run the water maker. And so you mix the purified seawater with this hideous freeze-dried food. And, and that's what you, you live off. And it's disgusting <laughs> it's, a, it's a miserable, miserable but you have to do 8,000 calories yeah. in these little breaks between navigation and 20 minute naps yeah multiple times throughout the day yeah because your energy output is just through the roof that's right yeah yeah and then your navigation you, it's just you yeah like yeah. with maps Yes, yeah, so you have an Atlantic charts and you have a GPS that also runs off the solar power. So you've got your latitude and longitude. And um, the challenge with that actually was that we, we left quite soon after September the 11th. So we, we'd heard that there was possibilities that, you know, the American government might turn the GPS system off or, you know, there was all kinds of rumors about what might happen after September the 11th. So we learned astronavigation, we went on courses so that I could use a sextant and just a chart and an almanac if I had to. And thankfully I didn't have to because it's really complicated and actually you need a fairly stable platform and the boat is never stable. It's constantly rocking. So to take a sextant reading off the sun is, is extremely difficult. So when you talk about like pre-GPS and Magellan, who all the great explorers who are like literally in the ocean with the stars... That was actually incredibly difficult to do. Oh, yeah, um, unbelievably so, you know. And, and, and then that's just the first bit. Then the kind of mathematical calculations you have to do from what you read from the almanacs, is, is that bit's complicated as well. So, it, And when you're doing that, you're not rowing, just a basic. No, no. <laughs> you're just sitting there. Um, when you're sleeping... The boat drifts. And there's a, like a are the like water anchors I've read about that sort of hold it in place or what? Yes, yeah, so there's there's no anchor because at a certain point it's five kilometers right. deep. So, but like, what's the thing that I've heard people put over the boat to sort so of hold it in place? So, if you've got a very strong headwind, you can put out what's called a para anchor, parachute anchor. Of, yeah. So you, it's off the bow, it's on a long rope, and it's like a like a thin nylon parachute, just like you jump out of a plane with, and it sits just under the surface of the water and stops the boat being dragged. It, it, it slows the drag backwards. Yeah. if you're into a headwind so if it was really stormy I'd get in this there's a coffin shaped little cabin at the back and I'd get in that and close the hatch down and I'd be sitting on the parachute anchor rolling around until the, the storm had passed and I'd get out and pull the anchor in and um, but but when you're just in your normal breaks, what you're doing is letting the boat drift. And so I'd sleep with a little handheld GPS in my my hand on the cushions inside this cabin bit, which you know is tiny, like it is really like a coffin. And um, the first thing I do when I open my eyes, what I I was I would look at my latitude and longitude and see had I drifted forwards or backwards. <laughs> and some days you you know you lose all the miles that you've spent all morning rowing, and other days you get lucky and you you go slightly further towards Barbados. How? Okay, the psychological battle mm. seems like it would be devastating. Or it would be yeah. euphoria followed by devastating. Without a doubt, this is a psychological challenge. I, like, 95% is this is a mental challenge because, I mean, partly the, the, the hardest thing is the loneliness. You know, you, uh, you think about it, even if people choose to live alone, they would hand over money in a a shop or they'd walk past someone in the street but when you see nobody for month after month 
it, it's not right. You know, I think we're designed to communicate and to give love and receive love, and and not having that outlet is 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 awful and so you give it to anything so for me it was the sea turtles or the fish you know I'd have these very lengthy conversations with the marine life because they're just desperate to speak to something and I had a teddy bear on board that a, a, a girl had given me and um, you know I'd have these lengthy conversations with Woody it's a bit like that Tom Hanks movie Castaway well that's actually the image that I just thought yeah of. I, I mean that I don't know how they researched that film but it's exactly right the relationship he has with Wilson which is a handprint on a ball for those who haven't seen the movie once again Tom Hanks got it right yeah he did <laughs> Nails it every that time. really is like it. How did, did you ever wonder, am I going crazy? I did worry about that. So what I would do is I, I um, you have a ship's logbook where you record the weather conditions and that's, you know, every ship has one. A rowboat's logbook. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would write also journal in that and I'd write about how I was feeling and what was going on and then, um, I'd always leave it about five days and then I'd read back five days and go, okay, does that sound like a crazy person? Because I was worried. Like, how do you tell if you're going crazy? And you hear all these maritime stories of people being at sea for months and going mad. And, yeah, and absolutely. I, and and he, the books I've read on rowing th the oceans. And there's <laughs> a guy who ended up in ro rowing the coast of Russia and ended up in North Korea. Like, and the stories are like just a, like a slow descent into madness often. And yet I found the complete opposite. I came back having complete clarity about things I couldn't find in life on land. And I think part of that is that we're so busy all the time. And, and I found because the, the, the daily life out there is quite routine, it's quite simple, it's very basic, that I, I could retrieve things from my memory that I... I had never remembered before, you know, stuff from my childhood. And because all of a sudden I didn't have all this frontal lobe busyness to to block the path of those memories. So I, I think that because of that, I had a lot of time to sit and think and remember stuff and came back incredibly peaceful. You know, my father had died of leukemia at 58 quite soon before I left for the row. And I'd had these few years of just torture of, I wish she'd be alive for this. I wish she'd be alive to be there at the end of the row. You know, left kind of tormented about it and came back with this complete peace about it all because we're so busy, we don't even give ourselves time to grieve. And I had that time out there, and I miss it now. You know, that's why I, I still have to go out on, you know, on surf or kayak and put my hands on the water occasionally and just go, ah, okay, we're all right again now. <laughs> oh, I, I know all about that. Um, and so did you talk to anybody? I had did a satellite phone. you have a radio, phone. your satellite phone? Yeah, I had a satellite phone that ran off the solar power. Uh, so if the conditions were right and had enough battery power, I could call home. And I did call home a lot, actually. My twin sister was invaluable. Andrew was really helpful. Um, and did you call and say, like, hey, how you guys <laughs> doing? <laughs> I did more and more because I was desperate for co company and conversation. And my phone, phone bill at the end was about £12,500. So <laughs> it, 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 was <laughs> it became a real lifeline. I'm not sure I would have even made it without that phone. Yeah. Um, and what are the convers at that point, what are the conversations like with your husband? Very practical. You know, he was able to analyze weather in a way yeah. that I couldn't, so he'd be feeding me weather, weather information, generally just being a support, you know, being... Yeah, because there's like a pressing thing you're doing where you yeah. need as much help as possible. I do, and I was, you know, some days you I would ring up and I'd be euphoric and I'd just seen dolphins leaping out the water right next to me and landing with a big splash after a somersault. And you ring on those days and then 
you also he would never know what he'd get because then the next time I might I might call and I'd be in floods of tears, which happened more often than the other sort of calls, um, because I just felt I couldn't cope with it anymore. What's the most scared you were? Was it a storm? There were there were storms. Um, there were two hurricanes while I was out there. They were north of my position, but the effects travel a long way across the ocean, and they. They were bad. They, I remember one of the waves, um, it, it knocked the boat over on its side and it, I had a navigation light, which was the only thing really the ships could ever see at night for me because I didn't really show on their radar. And it knocked the navigation light off. And I was in the sh main shipping lane that goes from down the side of America, so from North, North South America. And I knew I couldn't be seen. And it was three o'clock in the morning and you know I was in a I was in a panic about what to do. I was convinced I was going to get run over because by this point I'd been at sea for two and a half months and I'm exhausted and irrational. And and I, I that was a really bad night. Um, and then there were sharks were the other thing that really freaked me out initially because I just didn't have any knowledge. You know, like my sole knowledge of sharks was based on the Jaws movies I'd seen in the 80s. So I honestly thought they were going to munch through the side of the boat and eat me. And so early on, what happens when the sharks were swimming around the boat at night is when they move fast through the water, these phosphorescents the glow off their back in the kind of the water like gets like disrupted. And it's like a lightning bolt. It's greens and yellows. Uh, and so when they move fast, it looks like a lightning bolt moving around the boat. And I saw this lightning bolt. I was watching it for a while swimming around and then it dashed off to the side and I thought, oh, thank goodness, it's gone. And then it started heading for the side of the boat at great speeds. And I thought, this is it, you know, I'm going to die. And I dived into the little cabin bit and shut the hatch down, which was ridiculous because the boat's made of six millimeter thick plywood. Like it's, <laughs> it's not going to protect me. But because I couldn't see it, somehow it, it was better. And I soon realized after that, that actually they weren't after me. I'd have a lot of... Um, fish that were attracted to the light and or, the, or they'd shelter underneath the boat and so the sharks would often be chasing you know the dorado or the you know other fish that were around the boat you and were like this mobile ecosystem i was it was like having a it was like being in a floating aquarium so you'd look over the side of the boat and because there's barnacles and and seaweed growing on the bottom because i was going so slowly this this marine life is just constantly nibbling and attracted to this, and particularly the sea turtles, which I loved. They were like the best company because they're funny and Jurassic, and they, you know, they they dive underneath, and I could hear them scratching and scraping on the bottom and eating the weed. But then they come up for air and they kind of exhale with such gusto because they've been holding their breath so long, like, <laughs> you know, and their eyes would like shake and wobble. And they'd, and then I always gave them names. And I think one Albert would dive down every time misjudge how deep the boat was and kind of headbutt the side of the boat, like, ah, I missed again, you know, and he'd kind of back up a bit and then, <laughs> you know, and you just, and watching all of this and being part of it and feeling like you're, you're at one with it. It's hard not to feel like you're at one with it because mm -hmm. I was away from people and land and society and news and all of that for so long that that became my norm to the point that when I got to the other side, I I was in tears the night before on the phone to my twin Haley saying, I'm going to turn around and row back. I can't, I can't do it. You know, I'd been told that like, the world's media were camped out in Barbados waiting for me and I couldn't face the thought of that. Because, yeah, you had... I mean, in the great tradition, you had like a unitive, an extended season of oneness with everything in which the boundaries dissolve. Yeah. And you see the seamless, integrated nature of everything, but then just day after day after day. Yeah. And the wonder of it all, like I, I would find myself 
watching this marine life going, thank you, God, like this creation, this. And I'm like, why am I thinking God? I don't even believe in God. Like it was, it was so So you so weren't somebody who's, this is, this is interesting. You, so before the row, you mm. wouldn't have described yourself as like a spiritual worldview or the depth of life or all that. You were like, nah, it's just yeah. this life and just what we can see, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I grew up going to church as a child, but I was taking a very long sabbatical from it. <laughs> <laughs> but then something happens out in the ocean. Yeah, because you can't help but feel the weight of this creation pressing on you. Like, the beauty of it is so awesome that you... I found myself thinking, this can't be chance. Like, this is too beautiful for this just to be chance. So you could die at any moment. It's terrifying. There are sharks. You're exhausted and, and wondering if you're going crazy, but you're also overwhelmed with gratitude mm. and wonder and awe for the source of it all. Yeah. All of it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my word. So you get to shore in Barbados. Yes. And there are, what, are there cameras waiting? Are there boats so, that meet you as yeah. you start to come in? Yeah, there's a flotilla of boats waiting and so the welcome I received was phenomenal, but there was also, you know, all the American TV networks, the BBC, that you know, so there, all the journalists were there as well, and and in that, and the sound, you know, like all I've heard is wind and waves, and it's just been blue and grey for so many months, and it's like this huge sensory overload, where people are yelling, I assume, yeah. engines, all and that. As I w as I rode into the marina room. Ports and Charles and Barbados, all of the big super yachts there, all, the captains are all hooting their horns, these big like 120 foot yachts, so you, you feel the horn vibrating in your lungs, like it's so loud, and I was completely in sensory overload. <laughs> but so, as soon as I saw my family on this boat coming towards me, all the fear about finishing and integrating mm. back into society, it just all went away, you know, these incredible people who'd got me across and who loved me and and had I hadn't appreciated how much pressure I'd put them under, how incredibly selfish I'd been until I, I saw their faces, particularly my mum's, because of course dad had just died and she you know, she's on her own. And it just hit me like she has spent every night lying in bed thinking, I have no idea if my daughter is dead or alive now. And it's only now that I'm a mother myself I realise how impressive that was to never say to me do you realize what you're putting us all through by carrying on alone and it, it, it changed my view of parenting it, it made me realize that actually as a parent it's often what we don't say that shows how much we love them rather than what we do say oh my word that's profound how many times you um hold your tongue yeah. and just let them have the experience yeah yeah because that's what love requires in that moment yeah the freedom to go ex find out Oh, my word. Um, when you got on land, describe for me what it was like to touch land. Wobbly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I couldn't walk. And um, I, I'd been told to expect this by the other crews who'd already, everyone had finished by this point. You know, some of them had finished months ago and gone home. And I stepped off land. But you won in some other way. <laughs> well, it, you know, that's an interesting way of putting it because I remember the Times newspaper wrote an editorial and the editor wrote, the woman is the girl who came last. No, the winner is the girl who came last or something like that. You know. Something British and clever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I did feel like that because I'd had this incredible experience. I didn't have the pressure of the race that all the other guys had had where they're 
constantly pushing each other in this partnership on this boat to who's going to do the longest rowing shift because I wasn't in the race. I'd been disqualified. So I had instead the chance to have this beautiful experience. Wow. And you get on land and you're a little wobbly. What has happened to your body? What happens then to your body over the next... How long do you stay in Barbados before you go back to England? Well, I went back to England the next day um, because I got a phone call saying... Uh, and we had a lot of offers from the media. And this one where there was a chat show at the time that was like our biggest chat show in the UK. And they rang and they're like, please, let, you know, let us fly you back. Um, Meg Ryan's on the show. And we want you to come on with Meg Ryan. Um, so I, I did. I flew back with Andrew. We did this interview. And then they flew us back to Barbados to have this two-week two holiday with our family that we had planned right from the beginning. So I had a brief spell back in England and then um, was back in Barbados to celebrate. And what is your, um, like, what is your body feeling like or doing that that was a real surprise I, I i didn't have big problems adjusting to life at sea but i had really bad problems returning to land um, my ear balance had adjusted so much to the motion that um where every time i tried to walk anywhere i it was like not knowing which way is up there's no sense yeah. of kind of gravity and because my calf muscles had wasted away because you don't use those in this rowing action i i if I start to fall, I had no leg muscles to kind of stop myself. So I had to walk everywhere with a person either side for a few days and they would walk me around and, you know, which is fine until, of course, one of them would go to the bar and the other one would go to the bathroom and I'd be like, oh, quick, someone, oh, no. And I'd be on the floor in a pile again. And so I fell over a lot in the first few days. I couldn't eat because your body adjusts to this kind of hideous, sloppy food. And then digesting solids is... It's really hard. Yeah. And so I vomit a lot. Um, I got really bad land sickness as well. Felt queasy all the time. And yet if I went and... You've been in the ocean yeah. for several months. But yeah. then you get land sick. Yeah. So Everything's if I got like back upside down. Everything's completely. backwards. Completely. If I got back on the boat that was tied up in the marina and it was bobbing around, I felt great. But if I got off and stood on the pontoon, which is cement, I felt awful. And what happened to that sense of wonder and awe about creation? It stayed. And... Um, I long for it. It's one of the reasons that I still keep doing the expeditions every year. Um, I, I, can't, I can't let go of it. Interesting. It stayed. So then you start to adjust back to life and your marriage. Mm. What happens there? I think initially the challenge really brought us together. It was quite unifying. And then it didn't work out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... He found someone he preferred, <laughs> and um, uh, we got divorced about a couple of years later. And what are you doing in that time? So the, your marriage ends, mm. you're not in the ocean. What do you do? What happens next? Well, it was a weird time because career-wise, everything took off because of the row. I got... I got employed by the BBC to be a host, and um, and that I mean that was a weird thing. I, in the middle of the Atlantic, I was nearly run over one day by a ship, and I called. Um, how, so how close is the ship? Oh, like I'm like bouncing down the side of this thing, and I'm ring up Haley, hysterical, like get me a rescue. And she's on the other end of the phone, going, "Your sister?" Yeah, my twin Haley. She said, "You know you." you can't quit. I'm like, you've got to get me a rescue. And she's like, no, you can't quit because 
you're going to be a TV presenter. And I'm like, I don't want to be a TV presenter. I just don't want to die. You know, I'm like hysterical. And she, and, and she keeps going on and on about this. And, and she's, she's naming programs. You're going to work on Grandstand, which at the time was the BBC's flagship sports program. You're going to be a host like Sue Barker. Like she named this woman who used to front a lot of the programs. And I'm thinking, what's well, crazy? What is she telling me this for? thing to be saying, right. And she has the, the, you know, this huge faith. And um, if she said to me at the time, you know, I've had this prophecy, I'd have been like, what? I don't believe in prophecy, you know. So she couldn't say why she was saying it. Um, but within a few months of getting back, I presented my first program on Grandstand for the BBC. And I, I think for me, it was a, an evidence of, it was the evidence I needed that there's a divine being out there that has a plan for our lives. And um, sometimes we're guided to things that we could not possibly imagine doing. Oh, my word. It's just so fantastic and weird. It is. <laughs> and as a cynical you know, person who had no faith, I guess I needed that level of convincing, you know, that kind of... Here's a prophecy that months later, months later comes true. That seems like you don't just walk into a job at the BBC. No, you don't no. just work in on the one of the biggest sports programs. And it, so you're doing that. So you're I'm doing, doing that, and I'm I then start this this weird job where I become a trustee of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award, which is a which is a big royal charity. And so I'm working really closely with Prince Philip and Prince Edward to. The Queen's husband and son, and so I'm going to these regular meetings at Buckingham Palace, and so <laughs> life has like gone bonkers. Like, what is going on here? Like, this is the so far from the life before the row, and I'm being given opportunities by the BBC to, you know, here's funding, go and do another expedition, and we'll come with you and film it. So I'm getting the chance to do expeditions and get them funded and have beautiful TV programs made out of them, and yet in my home life, it's like disaster. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm. I'm moving out and I'm living in a little flat on my own and feeling yeah. desperately lonely. And by the way, I like that you just stop that like that. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. I so appreciate it when people tell the story as it actually was. Mm. But hey, it's okay. You know what I mean? They just, no, it was difficult. It was. I, re I remember saying to someone at the time, going through a divorce, I divorced Andrew for adultery and... Um, it, I remember saying, this is way harder than rowing the Atlantic. Um, I had no mm. appreciation of the emotional turmoil. I mean, you know, we're, in a way, the, the one blessing was we didn't have children um, to complicate the, the yeah. situation. But it, it, was, it was horrible, hard, really hard. And um, emotionally just took me to a place I'd never been before. And... and and so you've had this awakened sense of the divine, of God, of mm. meaning, hope, some sense that there's a path in mm. all of this. So you keep going, you're doing expeditions. Mm. And is there some, do you have some like, oh, this is now what it's all going to look like? Or is it just bit by bit, new things come your way? What does your life look like then five, ten, five, ten years after the row? Well, I think a big part of the puzzle was meeting my now husband, Tim. Um, he The surfer. Uh, Tim the surfer. We, we yeah. already like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Tim. Um, yeah, you know, I think he, he healed my broken heart. He, I, I had all these preconceived ideas about um, particularly the Christian faith and 
what leading a life as a Christian would mean as a divorced huh. woman, you know, and I grew up with a lot of the stigmas going to church that others would, you know, around divorce being a bad thing and you marry for life and you make it work. So I had this guilt about that. I met this guy who'd been waiting for the one, you know, he was in his mid-30s, had not married, was waiting for the right woman, had this fantastic faith that I respected enormously and thought he's never going to be interested in me as a divorcee because that's, you know, that's what I grew up believing, being told. Oh, interesting. And I remember him saying to me once that um, this God is a, is a God of second chances. And I thought that was such a great way of putting it. Uh, and his whole family, you know, came with that approach, even though his father was in ministry, his brother's in ministry, um, and they, they've loved me and accepted me as I am. And I'm enormously grateful because they healed that hole in my heart. Isn't it interesting how uh, a person will hear something in some impressionable early portion of mm. life that could be completely insane or illogical, but some authority figure somewhere sort of emblazons it on the psyche, and then you just, it's still with you years later. <laughs> Yeah. Even though rationally you're like, that's a ridiculous idea. It's still with you until somebody comes along and helps you let it go. Yeah. And so it's like, no, that's not true. Yeah. That was never true. I'll show you it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and but now you have all these different businesses. Yes. So, so my father was a phenomenal man. So Haley and I, um, my twin and I, were adopted um, at, at six months and um, adopted into this fantastic family my father um had so many different kinds of businesses you know as i was growing up and that that had a big impression on me um watching him you know buy and sell and grow businesses and so i i think Haley and i have become a little mini me's of our father uh so we all the businesses i i run with my twin and um we you know we do such a diverse range of things and um, we, you know, we have a bit of an ethos is we, if it's not fun, we'll stop, you know, so we, we've got a good, <laughs> healthy uh, view on it all. And we have stopped things recently. We closed down a company. We worked really hard on for two years. Just, it wasn't fun. You know, it wasn't bringing oh. us any joy anymore. <laughs> I love it. So, but you know, we're in a very fortunate position to be able to do that because the other companies are, are doing financially well. So, um. Tell me about the attitude, the speaking that you do on attitude. Mm, I do a lot And of how little is about skill from what I understand of your work. Yeah. Helping people see how little of it is actual skill and talent and how much of it is attitude. Yeah. So uh, I read the highlights of a research paper many years ago where they looked into top performers, those who'd really excelled in their chosen fields. And they found that when they drilled into what had made these people successful, only 15% of it could be attributed to skill, but 85% was down to their attitude. And for me, uh, coming back from the Atlantic Row, what had become really apparent was that it was attitude that got me across. I had certain things I did every day that were mindset kind of act attitude activities that helped me stay positive at sea. And what I do now is when I speak a lot on, on how anyone can do that, because it's not rocket science. You know, it's, um, they're, they're structured things that could be applied that, that control the way you think, you know, because there's this equation, this, you know, what we think about affects how we feel and that in turn affects how we act. And the result of that action is either positive or negative, depending on what we first thought about. And that we have this complete control of that first bit, the thought we get, we're the thinker of our thoughts. We get to decide this bit. And as soon as we realize that, it changes the way we view absolutely everything. Yeah. So if we want to view the, the world through a lens of, 
the world is evil and against me and my boss hates me and my, you know, my husband does this all the time, then of course we'll see evidence of that all the time because we train our subconscious brain to look for those things to happen. But when we train our subconscious brain to look for the positives in life, for the, the good stuff, we start to see it everywhere. And you now, I love that, you go, now you're still doing expeditions. Yes. And like, what would that be? You cook up something insane <laughs> and then you go do it to this day. Yeah, so they've, they're quite varied. So this year, in, in fact, in two weeks, I'm going to cycle from the Atlantic coast to the Mediterranean coast via the Pyrenees Mountains, um, which is kind of partly because I, I busted my knee recently, so I've had some reconstructive surgery. So really the only thing I can do is cycle at the moment. Um, but we've, we did a brilliant project just recently, um, which was actually a bit of a crossover project. It was for our other company, Mixed Diversity Developers, where we work with global organizations to help them be more inclusive places to work. And we did a, a, a project in the Arctic for a car company. Um, we took um, 12 of their female employees off. We, we kind of spent a year training them to be Arctic explorers, kind of desk-bound office workers. What did you know about Arctic exploring? Well, all expeditions are the same and that it's about coping in an extreme environment, being able to navigate, being able to look after yourself and your team. And so th there's actually great commonality across oh, every okay. adventure. So uh, there's some basics that once you have a handle on what it is, then whether yeah. it's hot, cold, yeah, it's high, low, whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, it's about the controlling the risks in. and um, managing the risks and and keeping mentally and physically healthy along the journey. So you take 12 employees from this car company. Yeah. Women. Um, Women And what we're trying to do is we're very aware that in that industry, the car industry, there's a lot of unconscious bias. It's a very male-dominated world. And we were trying to use these women's stories as hooks, really, to hang messages on around what we do or do not perceive women can do. And it was a great project. You know, it, it's throat with problems around how do you t protect people from polar bears. And <laughs> what, so where did you go? You hiked so in the Arctic? So we did a crossing, a traverse of Baffin Island in the Arctic Circle. <laughs> how, lo how long does that take? It, it was a, um, about two weeks, but a, about 10 days of that is the crossing. And there are polar bears. Yeah. That's an issue. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there were, we had to put up bear fences and everyone had a, a, a bear flare. And, a, you know, we had an Inuit traveling with the team who had a rifle. And, um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's a, it's an interesting world as a professional adventure. I've got this wonderful woman, Steph, who works for me. And she's always laughing at the diversity of her job. I'm like, Steph, go and research polar bear, anti-whatevers, you know. And she's, she's like, I love my job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been in... Any situations since the row? Have you been in equally terrifying situations like the row since the row? I think they're all challenging for their own different ways. Different ways. Um, I, I've definitely not been as lonely. <laughs> um, yeah. I, do you ever wonder? Do you? Is your mind? I imagine that your mind has built up muscles mm. now having done expedition after expedition yeah, to where where you would have panicked a while ago yeah. and now you stay calm? Is yeah. that, does the mind just get that much stronger? I think you learn techniques and strategies that work for you. So I have a whole load of kind of mindset tools and techniques that I rely on when I'm doing the expeditions, but actually have noticed that they work just as well in my home life with the kids. Where can people get these, by the way? Um, Polar bears, kids. Yeah. <laughs> we can draw all the connections. Where, are these accessible? 
Yeah, so, well, there's some of the ideas would be on my TED Talk or um, I have a vlog where I, I'm, I've just started it. I don't know whether I'm going to keep going with this. It's a bit like you when you first started this Robcast. You like, just don't I'll know. Just this, you just try don't this know where we're going, yeah. So I've been trying to put them into little three-minute videos um, on my, my website, debrasell.com, to see whether they resonate with people because I, I think what it ca I, more than anything, I've, what I would love to do now and focus on is how do you help people live intentionally? How do you help them see how much joy there is to be had every day and we just seem to miss out on so much of it because of the routine and the humdrum of life. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's all attitude-based. And we, we have complete control over that. I had this thing I would do at sea where every morning, I, in fact, it was because of something Haley said to me during this phone call when I, you know, she's telling me I'm going to be a TV presenter. She also went on to say, you know, Deb, you've just got to choose your attitude about this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, she's sitting I, in a yeah, chair. Exactly. And in I'm England. like, I would punch you now <laughs> if you were here. But actually, drinking tea, yeah. saying, you know what your problem is out there in the ocean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it stuck. And I remember writing, choose your attitude. Because I think it stuck because I realized that nothing else out there I had a choice about. I couldn't choose whether I got blown backwards 30 miles or attacked by a shark or run over by a ship. But I could always choose the attitude with which I bounced back from those problems. And so I did this routine every morning where I'd sit by this the hatch where I'd written this and I would say, right, come on, Deborah, choose your attitude. Which one is it going to be today? And it wasn't about always choosing a positive attitude because that's not what was always needed. Sometimes it was a patient attitude or, you know, whatever. But the key to it, I noticed, was that the n taking this next step, which was I had to list out loud what would be the outcome if I could stick to that attitude. Like today, if I pick optimism what would happen? Well, you know, I suppose if I'm being optimistic, I might pull hard and then I'll do more miles in this day. And it's like I would train my subconscious yeah, brain right. by listing these things right. to find ways to make them happen. And so I, I've stuck to that one. I still do that one on expeditions, on, you know, before meetings. In the, Every morning, that's the one I've stuck to. Choose your attitude each morning and then what would be the outcome if you stuck to it? Because I, I think we've got this potential in our subconscious brain that we don't capitalize on at all. That if we can tap into that bit of our thinking, mm -hmm. that bit of our thinking that, you know, when you decide you want to buy a certain type of new car, you then start seeing them everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That bit. When we start to, to tap into that bit of our subconscious brain, we can capitalize on getting to the goals or the opportunities or the way of life or the intentionality that we really desire. I love that. I love that. Um, I'm always struck with how hope is different than optimism. Mm. That optimism and pessimism are like states of, you know, how you're thinking. Are you thinking positively, negatively? But like uh, this one line in the New Testament about how hope is because you've suffered and persevered. It's like hope isn't like, you know, how you're thinking today. It's this thing that got formed in you yeah. because you kept going. And then you realize that thing that you were terrified of, you actually made it through. So the next time that thing comes your way, you're like, oh, I've already done this. Yeah. Um, that it isn't like like a state of thinking. It's a thing that's been formed in you that you draw on going to your idea of the subconscious. Something got formed in you that is simply present. And I think it's a, there's an issue with the way we contextualize things as well. You know, we the, the way we have this propensity to blow things out of proportion. You know, we I have this scale that I would use at sea, like, 
I would the days were desperate. I'd be like, okay, how bad is it? I had a how bad is it scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one was, yeah, you've made it to Barbados. And 10 was, okay, you're being eaten by a shark because that's about as bad as I could imagine it getting. And on my absolute worst days at sea, when I would say, I am, this is rock bottom. I can get no lower than here. I'm desperate. I would go, okay, how bad is it, Deborah? And if I put myself on the scale, I was often only ever at about a six or a seven. I, like, I, I could deal with so much more mental and physical hardship than that. And, and so, I've, you know, I've got this new scale now and I still ask myself, like the new scale is, you know, the businesses have gone bankrupt and I've lost the house. Like that would be pretty bad. That's number 10 on the scale. And even in my worst days in the office, when I've blown it all out of proportion yet again and I put myself on the scale, I'm like a three or a four. I mean, it's, there's so much more. Oh, I love that. Make a scale. Yeah. <laughs> How bad is it scale? Because it? it's never as bad as we think it is. Now, your daughters are seven and nine? Yes. If I were, what are their names? Heidi and Molly. Heidi and Molly. If I say Heidi and Molly, what does your, your mom do exactly? They would say, oh, she's a professional adventurer. They Would they really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what they tell everyone. Is that... It's that also my business card. so much joy... That, they're that you're getting to raise daughters with this view of the world. I love it. So this is what happened last week. My, my daughter went to a holiday camp uh, at an activity center. And she came home so proud to tell me that uh, as they were packing up at the end of the day, one of the instructors had said, I need two strong boys to come and help me lift this stuff back inside. And she stood there indignant and went, ah! excuse me, you know, like, girls can be strong oh. too, you know, and of course she's, you know, it's not that I talk about that at home, but she's what she sees, you know, she sees that yeah, I'm she, taking women yeah. off to the Arctic and I'm, you yeah. know, and w that women can be just as strong as men. So she's, she's become this little fantastic feminist who <laughs> is out to prove that women can be as strong as men, which I love because I think, I think there is a, a need for that in their generation. I worry about their generation because I, I, I don't think they are. They have this depth of resilience that our generation, particularly our parents' generation, have got. That they they haven't had to be resilient in many ways. They yeah. don't. They haven't lived through a world war. They're not right, the right, children right, of right, people right. who've been through a world war. That yeah. And so they they have a, a mindset that is, I don't think, is equipping them for adult life well. Yeah, it's like the, our previous generations, our parents and our parents' parents worked so hard to give us a great life that they were successful. Like, you did it. Yeah. And the problem is, yeah, we were handed something so great and in some ways easy that yeah. there are all of these struggles we simply haven't had. Yeah. And you can see it around. Like, we gained a whole number of things, but we also somehow lost. It feels like all these people are waking up to what we lost Yes. in yeah. all this. Even all of the... Tough mutter and all the um, races and all of the challenges people are putting them through to start every day with a cold shower. Like uh, even the little things that people are like, yeah. bring some suffering back in because it's good. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's <laughs> partly it. And I think it's, it's a combination of that and the, the lack of exposure to the outdoors that yeah. the young people have now. You know, and our, yeah. our, if you're 40 plus, the average was 71% of our time was spent playing outdoors. It's now dropped to 21%. So the children are not going outdoors. They're not having that chance to um, do outdoor play that builds resilience and, and all the fantastic things that kind of come with it around mm -hmm. reduction of stress and obesity yeah, levels right, and all right. of those other things. And so the joy for us as parents is we get the chance to gift them that, um, yeah. to teach them that actually 
pinching on a, a tablet screen and, and zooming in to see the great outdoors is no. never going right. to be as good as right, being right, there right. and feeling it. Like we can't, right. you don't feel that. You've got to be out there on the mountain or by the coast yeah. or in the sea to experience that. And th that's a real challenge, I think, for us as parents because we're, we're all so busy. That's busy, busy, busy. It's what we talk about all the time. And so we run out of ideas. We like you get home and we want to do something with the kids outdoors, but we're just so exhausted. Like <laughs> that's that's what I see and it's what I feel sometimes. And mm. so for me it's the real challenge of how do we not ignore the technology because we can't ignore it. Their their generation knows nothing but technology. Right. It's here. So how do we how do we capitalize on it yeah. and make it something that's fun? but still encourages them outdoors. So so an example would be, uh, and I just did a vlog on this recently, is that my kids love Junior MasterChef. And so I think there's a way to take stuff they love on a screen and then you transplant it in the great outdoors. So we go into the garden and we, I give them a, a pair of scissors and a little bowl and, they, and, and three plates and they've got to do a, a starter, a main course and a dessert made out of bits that they, they cut from you know, flowers or leaves or they've got to make it look like a beautiful meal. And so they end up with you know, dirt under their fingernails and, and, and ha touching nature in a way that yeah. when, we, when they get home from school, it... it it doesn't naturally seem to happen now. It's much easier to hand them an iPad. So I think we have to be much more creative as parents to find ways to to give them those opportunities. Yes. My daughter started school yesterday, and I picked her up yesterday from school, and she says, <laughs> I told my class about you and that jellyfish on the beach. Because there was this jellyfish on the beach when we were in, we were in Oregon last week, and... It was massive, but it was dead. It had been dead for a while. And she was like, it's alive. And I was like, no, it's not. It's dead. And we were having this discussion. So finally, I just took it apart into like lots of different pieces. She's like, I told him you beat up a jellyfish. And I was like, that's the first story you told. No wonder the teacher, when I went to pick her up, looked at me like, you're the dad who beats up jellyfish. But um, it, stru it struck me that of all the things from the summer, because they had to share like one summer memory. And her friend, I was, I'm like... You're, you seriously, you told your teacher that I beat up a jellyfish, and her friend right there was like, I thought it was very funny. But it was funny to me that her one memory of the summer was like sand, fresh air, yeah. water, a large jellyfish, and her dad apparently beating it up. Yeah. Like the, all the screen time, yeah. which is just what a kid, that's the thing. Because they'll, they'll never remember their best day of television ever. There was not one Minecraft story that she no. thought of telling. <laughs> but they'll, she'll tell that story for years. Probably. Well, hopefully. <laughs> okay, so um, people can get a hold of you and all your businesses. And you, you coach, you teach, you consult, you inspire, you travel around and speak. I do, yeah. Take I, people to the polar bear, <laughs> Arctic. All of those things, yeah. So... Um, com is generally where it all happens or if it's on diversity and inclusion the company's mixed diversity developers D-E-B-R-A-S-E-A-R-L-E that's right Deborah Searle as in Pearl that's right yeah you are so I just find you so crazy inspiring which I'm assuming you've been hearing now f for many decades from people but I, I love your grounded sense of how to think and I just all of it I'm so glad that you came to the back house Thank you. I, I think this, the rowing story is obviously fascinating, but what I'm always interested in is people, someone did something and then they kept going. Yeah. I'm always interested in the later. Yeah. As opposed to the person who's still running off of that adventure from however long ago, you 
keep coming up with new ones and bringing, figuring out how to bring more people in. Yeah, because, um, yeah, you know, because it's, you, you can't go through an experience like spending three and a half months alone with, without it deeply changing you. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I pick up. And, and so I, 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 had, I felt like my eyes were opened on that trip yes. to a, a new way of thinking and being. And, it, and, and now you're helping op open other people's eyes. That's what, it, yeah, that's the goal, yeah. Uh, just thank you. Thank you. So, all my Robcast friends, there you go. Oh, by the way, I'm thinking about calling this episode, Deborah Searle did what? 